morning, church. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Father, it is a blessed thing to have begun this morning by worshiping you and by rehearsing our covenant with you by partaking of the Lord's Supper together. We thank you for this occasion. We thank you for everything that it means. We, we praise you that it's true. And now we are delighted to open your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be kind to us, as he always is, by helping us to understand the things that we find here. And beyond that, that he would help us to embrace the truth and to apply it in ways that are glorifying to you and beneficial to us. We pray all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18. As you're finding your place there, please stand with me. We're going to read verses 6 through 23. Leviticus 18, beginning in verse 6. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother, She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter brought up in your father's family since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness, and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a, as with a woman, it is an abomination, And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. You may be seated.
It's been said in many different ways. This is one of them. The devil, the devil is not a creator. He's not a creative being, but rather he takes the good things that God has created and he perverts them. And it seems as if the realm of human sexuality is one of his favorite playgrounds. Examples of sexual sin and its destructive aftermath are rampant in the Scriptures. And Solomon's sexual failings prompted him to devote almost three entire chapters of the book of Proverbs to warnings against sexual temptation. The final section of Proverbs 7 reads like a parable. And it concludes with these words. This is Proverbs 7 beginning in verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me. And be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Solomon wrote those words, of course, speaking much from his own experience. Anyone among us who has not sinned sexually or been sinned against sexually represents a true anomaly. And yet, as with all sin, the Bible sets forth for us a great, all-sufficient Savior in Jesus Christ. And so when we take all of the biblical teaching into account, we, we, we must realize this, that those who would follow Christ must keep a close suspicious watch on their own hearts and minds while applying regularly the truths of the gospel in times of both victory and failure. Now, we're covering two passages this morning. We just read one of them. We're covering two passages in this section from chapters 18 through 20. Why would we cover two? Well, believe it or not, this section, chapters 18 through 20, is a chiasm. And the, the, the outer section of a chiasm is, as you may remember, some of you may not remember, the outer section of a chiasm is like bookends on a book, and they mirror one another thematically. And then moving in from those, that outer section, you find additional sections that mirror one another thematically. And you move in, you move in, eventually you get to the center, which has something significant to say, typically. So last week we covered the, the outer section of this chiasm, which, which showed us and framed for the whole section, it showed us that these laws in chapters 18 through 20, these are not simply laws, but they are calls to reflect faithfulness to the covenant that the people have entered with Yahweh. And just inside from that outer, outer shell, inside from there in the chiasm are these sections pertaining to sexuality. And as we study those two sections this morning, we're going to glean four truths. The first of which is this. Human sexuality is a major arena for reflecting either the ideals of the world 
or the character of God. Human sexuality is a major arena for reflecting either the ideals of the world or the character of God. And the fact that this is a major arena is reflected simply by how much space is devoted to this issue in these three chapters of Leviticus. No other issue, not even idolatry, receives more attention than sexual issues in these chapters. In fact, if you remove that outer section that we looked at last week, of everything that's left, almost 40% of what God has to say in these, these laws on human living pertain to sexuality. And that outer frame that we looked at last week prompts us to understand the issue as one of choosing Will we, in our sexuality, reflect the ideals of the nations, or will we reflect the character of God? And when the chapter opens, God says, look, don't don't do what the Egyptians do, and don't do what the Canaanites do, but rather, do what I say to do. Why? Because you're in a covenant with me. You're not in a covenant with them. And what follows indicates that human sexuality is a major way that the creation expresses rebellion against the Creator. There, there is, in the section that we've just read, just a laundry list of sexual perversions that God prohibits. Verse after verse after verse. And all these things that God says, don't do that. The reason He's raising these particular issues is because these are the exact things that the nations do. He's saying, don't do these things. These are the things that, that those who have rebelled against Me. That's what they do. You don't do these things. So on the very surface, just a very quick takeaway for us, is that when asking the question, what what is normal? What is acceptable in the realm of human sexuality? We should never allow the world to answer that question for us. Never. In what area of life does our culture collide with the Word of God more than any other. It is in this area of human sexuality and related issues. The typical non-believing American, they were to read the passage of Scripture that we've just read. They would regard this passage as oppressive, antiquated, closed-minded, bigoted. Some might even say evil. And so we can't trust the world to answer the question, what is normal sexually? Many in the modern confessing church, though, they are allowing to answer that question for them. What is normal sexually? And they're listening to the world, and they're allowing the world to answer that question. When God is actually, He's answering it for us here, but instead they're allowing the world to press the world's answer on them. And that is why so many in the confessing church are rejecting the authority of Scripture. It's because the world's answer is incompatible with God's answer. A choice must be made. And that is explicitly and repeatedly put forth in these chapters. With your sexuality, you will either reflect the world's ideals or God's character. This is and always has been a major area of rebellion against God among humanity. Why is that? We'll see more shortly, but human sexuality is intended to reflect the faithful character of God and its proper functioning is directly related to man's task of imaging God. A way that we image God is to subdue the earth and to rule over the creation. We find that in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and following. 
to the end of our subduing the earth and ruling over the creation, God blessed man and told him, be fruitful and multiply. And to the end of our being fruitful and multiplying, God instituted marriage. And so the enemy's attack on human sexuality is an attack on the image of God. And it's an attack on man's task of imaging God. And that brings us to a second truth this morning, which is that sexual activity that reflects covenant faithfulness is confined to monogamous heterosexual marriage of non-relatives. I'll say that again. Sexual activity that reflects covenant faithfulness is confined to the monogamous heterosexual marriage of non-relatives. You'll remember from last week that the people, the people of Israel, they're in a covenant with God. It's much like a marriage. And so they are faithful to Him. He is their God and they are His people. And there's a particular way of living that reflects faithfulness to that bond. And we saw that there are twin concerns caught up in this idea of covenant faithfulness. The first of those I've already mentioned is don't follow the nations, but follow God. A second idea caught up in covenant faithfulness is image God. He is holy, so you must be holy. And As already noted, sexuality is a prime arena for both of these. God is a covenant-keeping God. He has chosen a, a particular people from all the nations of the earth. He is faithful to them and He desires that humans in their sexuality reflect that same commitment to covenant faithfulness. And on top of that, there is the already mentioned concept that, that imaging God and specifically multiplying that man might subdue and rule over the creation, that literally requires human sexual activity as God has prescribed it. Subduing the earth, and ruling over it, that is imaging God, doesn't require just any sexual activity. It requires the specific sexual activity that God has sanctioned as holy. Human sexuality is, is good and beneficial only when it reflects the character of God. And the Scriptures have been written in such a way that we really don't have to put much guesswork into what qualifies and does not qualify as God-honoring sexuality. We've just read chapter 18, verses 6 through 23. You might scan back through there again. We can glean from these verses alone that sexual activity that reflects the character of God is confined to monogamous, heterosexual marriage of non-relatives. The first section that we read prohibits incestuous relationships, sexual relationships with close relatives. That's where we get the non-relatives part. And by the way, the phrase that we read repeated over and over is, do not uncover the nakedness of this person, uncover the nakedness of that person. Uncovering the nakedness is a euphemism for sexual relations. In fact, you, you, you would be hard-pressed to find a commentator who does not understand that phrase to be a reference to intercourse. We find, we find in the text an explicit prohibition of adultery. There are explicit prohibitions against homosexual relations and bestiality. And God, by forbidding all these things, has declared them contrary to His will for man. Now, at times we may wonder, why? Why are these things wrong? Well, we have to remember again that human sexuality is designed in such a way for man to properly image God. 
And the truth, that truth implies two answers to this question. Why are these things wrong? Here's two answers to why are these things wrong. First of all, the law of God rules out things that contradict the character of God. The law of God rules out things that contradict the character of God. And that's why we find this repeated phrase interspersed throughout the giving of God's law. We find this phrase, you shall be holy as I am holy. So when God rules something out for human beings, it is because it in some way contradicts His character. Because He's calling His people to be holy as He is holy. God wants His people to image Him just as He had designed them to do in the beginning. So when He forbids something, He forbids something that does not coincide with His holy character. And there are ways in which all of these things forbidden in this chapter violate His character. Second, the law of God rules out things that are bad for us. God rules out things that are harmful to His people. Things that work against our flourishing. All of these things that we read about in this chapter, they are bad for man. And there are biblical examples of most of them leading to that harm for human beings. Listen to Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 13. Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 13. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. So all of the the commandments that God gives to His people, He gives them because they are good for them. They're good for them. God desires our good, and so He forbids Sexuality that is harmful to us. That is, he forbids sexuality outside the bounds of heterosexual monogamous marriage. Read the Bible and you'll find two things over and over though. You'll find these two things over and over. God knows better than man what is good for man. And man routinely refuses to believe that. And that started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. God knows what's best for us. We refuse to believe it. Will we believe it today? Now, these two things that I've just mentioned, that that God rules out things that contradict His character, and then He rules out things that are bad for us, those two things are actually connected. He rules out things bad for us. He rules out things that are contrary to His character. It is bad for us to adopt things that are contrary to the character of God. Now, why would that be? Again, it goes back to the fact that we're created in God's image. We we are designed, we are tailor-made to reflect His character. And so it goes against our design to live contrary to His character. And for both of those reasons, bad for us, contrary to His character, for both of those reasons, we find Him using these kinds of descriptors of these actions in this chapter. He says this kind of thing over and over. It is depravity. It is abomination. It is perversion. But the fall is a very real factor here. And so quite frequently our fallen minds and fallen bodies will tell us, well, this particular forbidden expression would be good. More than that, this particular sexual expression is who I am. And that's all lies, of course. It's lies. When, when my heart and mind and body find fault with the kind of sexuality that God has prescribed for me, It is my mind and heart and body that have malfunctioned. 
not the Word of God and not any interpretation of the Word of God. I must not ignore, subvert, or change the Word. Rather, I must by His grace be redeemed and conformed to His image. We'll talk more about that later. But it is bad for me to embrace in my character and practice what is contrary to the character of God. It is good for me to embrace in my character and practice what coincides with the character of God. Now, of course, the world will tell us exactly the opposite. Look again at Leviticus 18.24. This is from the passage that we considered last week. Leviticus 18.24. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. And again, that's why these particular laws are, are outlined here. Look, this is not an exhaustive list of things that are outside the bounds of, of, of propriety for human beings. This is not an exhaustive list. These, these are the particular ones that are being practiced by the Canaanites. Anything that you find outside the bounds of monogamous, heterosexual marriage of non-relatives, anything outside of that, even if it's not found on this list, is wrong. These are here particularly, again, because the nations were practicing them. What we want to keep in mind because of that is that what God finds reprehensible, the nations will champion as normal. And once again, this is why we cannot trust them to define for us what is right and wrong in this area or any area for that matter. Whether we're struggling with our own sin or struggling with whether to affirm a particular perversion because someone that we love has embraced that perversion, we must realize that, that, that on one level, the choice is, is actually very simple to quantify. We either agree with the nations or we agree with God. We either give ourselves to perversion or to displaying the covenant faithfulness of God. And that, 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 is, that is the choice. There, there is the, the good gift of sexuality within monogamous heterosexual marriage of non-relatives. And then there is Bad sexuality. There's, there's only two. And so we're, we're choosing between those. Third, this text and the rest of Scripture indicate that sexual sin is deadly. Sexual sin is deadly. Turn with me over to chapter 20. Chapter 20. This is the corresponding section of the chiasm. And here, the Lord gives the penalties for the sins that were forbidden in chapter 18. And these penalties, they seem to be arranged in the order of the severity, or the the laws seem to be ordered in in order of the severity of the penalty. Okay, so verses 10 through 16, you'll see, are sexual sins for which the death penalty is prescribed. Verses 17 through 21 carry what we might think of as less severe penalties. I will argue that they also are a form of death. Leviticus 20, beginning in verse 10. Let's read this whole passage. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness, both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, 
Both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. If a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he has made, her, he has made naked her fountain and has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among their people. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or your father's sister, for that is to make naked one's relative. They shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall die childless. Again, I've, I've worded this point that, that sexual sin is deadly. And as we see in, in many cases, that is literally true. But there are senses other than the literal. These, these penalties of verses 17 through 21 are deadly in another sense. To be cut off from the people, we've considered this in previous weeks. To be cut off from the people was to be cut off from the life and blessing of God. To be, to be put out of the people of God. That, that was tantamount to a living death sentence. Similarly, to die childless was a terrible penalty, essentially ensuring that one's family line would cease. You don't have to read much of the Old Testament to understand how dreaded such an eventuality was. But this is how serious these things are to God. They deserve death. They deserve removal from the people of God. They deserve the termination of one's family line. These acts clearly are not normal. They clearly are not okay. They clearly are not morally defensible before God. The deadliness of sexual sin is seen not only in this passage, but it's demonstrated in the lives of the patriarchs and the kings. I encourage you, read, read Genesis and read Read 2 Samuel through 1 Kings and into 2 Kings. Read, read all these books. Read, read 2 Samuel from beginning to end. The first half of the book you'll find is filled with the grandeur of David's kingdom and the blessings of God upon him. The second half of the book is filled with strife and turmoil. What was the turning point? You may be familiar with this already. The turning point was David's adultery with Bathsheba. Read on into 1 Kings and you'll see a very similar pattern with Solomon. Very similar pattern with Solomon. First half, all about the grandeur of his kingdom, the ways that God blessed him. After that, nothing but turmoil. What was the turning point there? 1 Kings 11 verses 1 through 3 tells us that he loved many foreign women who turned his wife away from God. In other words, he ignored what God said to him about the bounds of good and godly sexuality. The deadliness of sexual sin is also realized 
in the eternal punishment of the wicked. We could turn to the New Testament and find in, in, in a verse like Ephesians 5, these words, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Similarly, Colossians 3, 5, and 6, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now again, not so, says the world. Do whatever you want. There, there is no death of any kind associated with these things. And, and further, the, the, the world is trying hard to sell the lie that to love someone is to affirm them in all of these sexual perversions. It's to affirm them in any identity they desire. That's what love is, says the world. And so, some, again, even in the church, think that they have to make a choice either between believing the Bible or loving people. And that, too, is a lie. It is possible, and, and, and many of you I know are doing it, it is possible to love the lost while agreeing with God. And it's possible to do that because the world's definition of love is a lie. It is not loving at all to affirm someone in their rebellion against God. It is not loving to say to someone, look, it's okay to look at pornography. It's fine. It's totally normal. I mean, look around you. Everybody does it. It's not loving. It is not loving to say everyone commits adultery at least once. We're not wired for monogamy, not loving to say that. It is, it is not loving to say, your, your homosexual desires and activity are totally fine. That's who you are. Don't deny your identity. It is not loving to affirm someone in what will harm them and dishonor the image of God in them. I've, I've mentioned in, in the past that I have a, I have a congenital I have a congenital heart condition, and almost three years ago, my cardiologist, he had done some testing, and we were sitting together, and he very carefully and kindly said, something has happened with your heart, and if you do nothing to treat it, you probably have about five years. And he cared for me telling me that. And I could, I could see on his face he didn't want to say it. But he cared for me. Can, can you imagine? What an, imaginal, an unimaginable cruelty. If, contrary to what he knew to be true, he had just said to me, well, you're totally fine and these symptoms are nothing to worry about. These symptoms, they're just who you are, kind of. So, so embrace them. Celebrate them. And do you, Greg, can you, can, can you imagine? What, what a cruelty. What a cruelty. Sexual sin is deadly. And if we love those around us, we'll be honest with them about that. We'll be honest with ourselves about that. We'll not tell ourselves these lies. And we'll also be very eager to share this. It's the fourth truth that I want to share with you this morning. It's that sexual sin is forgivable and conquerable in Christ. Sexual sin is forgivable and conquerable in Christ. We hear about an unforgivable sin in the Scriptures. 
It's not this. Praise God, right? Isn't that fantastic? Not unforgivable. And not only that, not unconquerable. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is a passage that we've looked at numerous times. I suspect that we don't get tired of it because of the glorious things that it shares with us. You know, a magnificent thing about the gospel is that we are never in the position of a doctor saying, look, this is terminal and there is nothing we can do. Because the gospel is true. We're never in that situation. Rather, we're, we're like the doctor who's able to say, this will be terminal unless you do this one thing. And if you do this one thing, survival rate is 100%. That's good news. And that's why we call it the good news, the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, begin reading with me at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this should not surprise us because of all that we've already seen this morning. It should not surprise us at all. This is essentially simply saying, once again, sexual sin, among other things, is deadly. These things are so not okay that they carry an eternal death penalty, separation from God. But, verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Numerous things to to glean from from this. First of all, clearly Paul is writing to believers. He's writing to believers. Their sins, deserving of death, were covered by Christ's death in their place on the cross. And His resurrection three days later demonstrated the utter sufficiency of that payment. By God's grace... They repented and believed in Christ, and so they were washed, sanctified, and justified. Let's think about those three concepts, washed, sanctified, justified. First of all, washed. That is, they've been washed clean of the guilt of those sins. What sins? We just have to look back up at verses 9 and 10. Sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, and all the rest. Sins that left untreated would have led to inevitable death under the wrath of God were washed away, completely washed away by the spilt blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for those sins. Paul reminds them also that they were sanctified. And likely by by sanctified here, he means that these believers were set apart unto God in holiness. Set apart. That is the fundamental meaning of the word sanctification. Set apart. It's the picture of God taking something for Himself for holy use. So so these people, no longer defiled, but rather they are set apart unto God for His holy use. He reminds them also that they were justified, which means that the righteousness of Christ was 
imputed to their account, that is, moved to their account or, or credited to their account such that they were declared righteous before God. Not on the basis of their own record. What is their own record? It's all of the, the, the adultery, the sexual sin, the lying, the reviling, all of that stuff, the, the homosexual sin. That's their record, but not on the basis of their record, but on the basis of Christ's perfect obedience credited to their account. God says, righteous. And when Paul writes, such were some of you, but he indicates that they are those things no more. They are what things no more? They are no longer the sexually immoral, no longer idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy. They, 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 they are no longer those things. And not simply because they've been forgiven, but because they have been changed. When somebody follows Christ in faith, it's not just that there is forgiveness for deeds while the person will continue to be doomed to slavery, to that underlying disposition. No, J Jesus is not a half-savior. But rather, He frees us not only from the penalty of sin, but also from its power. Such were some of you. You were sexually immoral. You were adulterers. You were homosexuals. But not now. Now, you are the washed, sanctified, justified of Christ and His Spirit. There is an identity change and the power to live accordingly for those who by faith say, I submit to Christ. He, he will define me, not the world. He will lead me, not my own passions. I give everything to Him. I'm repenting of my sin. I'm trusting in Him alone. There is in Christ full forgiveness of sin and conquering of its power. Now, the New Testament indicates by its repeated exhortations to fight sexual sin that we do continue to struggle with the old self. And so if you are a believer this morning and you find yourself to be one who, who's still tempted by sexual sin, that, doesn't, that, that does not mean that you should automatically think, I'm not a believer. You know what Paul says to, 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 to the Christians in Corinth who were, who were visiting prostitutes? This is this very chapter, 1 Corinthians 6. What does he say to them? He doesn't say, you know what, you guys have been visiting prostitutes. You're probably not Christians. Now, what he, the way that he says it is, you're the body of Christ. You can't act like this. I mean, he assumes they are Christians. Christians still struggle with sexual sin. They still struggle with sexual sin. But they are not doomed to lose that battle. They're not doomed to lose that battle. We do not fight as those who are dead in sin, but as those who are alive in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered for battle. It's a battle we are destined to win. Now, you've, you've likely already considered how to apply these things this morning. I, I want to give you four concepts that may help to shape your thinking as you continue to do that. And th these are things that are applicable to those who have sinned sexually, and they're applicable also to those who have been sinned against sexually. First concept is confession. Some perhaps have been resisting conviction of the Holy Spirit. In one way or another, finding a way to call what God says is, is, is wrong, finding a way to call it right. 
or finding a way to call what God says is right, finding a way to call that wrong. Confession is agreeing with God, agreeing with God about our wrong thinking, about our wrong loving, about our wrong acting. And whether it's the prompting of the Spirit to forgive one who has hurt you or the prompting to recognize your own sexual sin, some of you have resisted the Holy Spirit. Begin this morning by agreeing with God that what He has said is right, is right. Second concept, surrender. Surrender to God's ownership of your life. Including this one. Including your capacity for sexual desire and activity. Surrender. Your capacity to forgive those who have hurt you sexually. Surrender. This belongs to God. And I will do with it what He says. I choose God, not the world. I trust Christ, not my own righteousness or understanding. I surrender everything to my Lord. A third concept, forgiveness. Seek His forgiveness for sin. Grant forgiveness where necessary. Finally, this last concept is actually two, two words. They go together, freedom and striving. Freedom and striving. Strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in accordance with God's design. Renew your mind by prayerful immersion in the Scriptures. Now, some of you perhaps have been steeped in these things for so long, you, you don't know where to begin. And you might, you might even confess this morning, I really need somebody to walk beside me through this, to help me with this. Just ask for that help, and you will find it at Providence Bible Fellowship. We have, we have pastors who are, who are delighted to walk alongside you in these things. We have trained counselors who would delight to walk alongside you through these things. Listen, all of us are sinners. So you'll find not condemnation when you come to us asking for help. You will find compassion, and you'll find us speaking the name of Christ and showing you how to apply the things from the Scriptures to your life. Freedom, striving. As is our custom, I'm going to close with prayer, and then we will observe a few moments of silent reflection. Consider during those moments what the Lord would have you to do with these things. Let's pray. Father, these coming moments may be moments of great wrestling for many of us. Some who have refused to confess sin to you, to confess sin to others, may be wrestling with you over that issue. Please be gracious to them and apply the appropriate pressure by the Holy Spirit to move them to confess that what you say is right, is right. Others may be struggling in these moments, Lord. They have, they have fought against this sin for so long, and they feel as if their life is 
is characterized more by defeat in this area than victory. And perhaps they are wondering, are these things about the gospel true? I pray, Father, that you would, you would exert gracious pressure upon their hearts to believe the gospel and to ask for the help that they need. Others in the room, Father, may recognize that they don't know you at all. They have not turned from their sins and trusted in Christ to save them. I pray that you would be gracious to them as well. Grant them to see their desperate state, that Christ is the only hope for sinners. Would you please move them to turn from their sin and trust in Him, that they might be joined to His body, spend eternity with you. We pray that you would give the appropriate help in each case, Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.